We're looking at ten references in the Gospel of Luke to the prayer life of Christ. And here in chapter 11, and I'm not going to repeat anything that I said before, at least I hope not, not remembering it as a sort of a difficult thing, so I may repeat it, not knowing repeating it, but he was praying in a certain place, and when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Now, you could say that at any time the Lord Jesus could be approached to teach people to pray. Obviously, given who he is, he's the one to teach any of us how to pray. Uh, you will recognize immediately the need to be taught to pray. Prayer, real prayer, in a sense, is natural to a Christian in that it is the mark of the new birth. Behold, he prayeth. There's something natural in a Christian that can't exist without seeking the face of God. But on the, there's another way in which prayer does not come naturally. The desire may be there, but we find that we are, as Romans chapter 8 makes clear, we are afflicted in two ways. First, we're afflicted with ignorance. We don't know what to pray for. And we don't know how to pray for it. So we're afflicted with ignorance. And then Romans 8 tells us that we're also uh, afflicted with impotence. We just don't have the power to do it. We have infirmities. The Holy Ghost has to come and help these infirmities that so drain all energy and power from us as we seek to pray. Now with that double affliction, ignorance, and these infirmities that make us impotent in our attempts to pray, we need to ask teachers to pray. Now you can be saved a long time and still be fairly ignorant about the things of prayer. These disciples have been with Christ quite a while, and they still needed to say teachers to pray. I think the last time I did point out that they had already been out casting out devils. But they still needed to learn how to pray. They had been preaching great sermons. But they still had to say, we don't know how to pray. That's a shocker. How many preachers are there in America tonight who know how to put a sermon together? But they don't know what it is to pray. Even good men. You will find that such is the ignorance and level of impotence in prayer. That the public ministry of the pulpit, as far as leading the congregation in prayer goes, in most evangelical and fundamental churches... Is so shocking, so shallow, as to be almost an insult to God. I have been in many services in many places, 
And I could vomit, and I'm not overstating it, I could literally vomit at times when I see preachers get up, they stick a hand in the pocket and they just nonchalantly rattle off a few thoughtless sentences to God. It means nothing to them, nothing to the devil, and I'm absolutely certain nothing to God. I've said before, and I say it again, that there was a time when in Protestantism, what was known as the pastoral prayer was as important a part of the public worship as the sermon or the reading of the scripture. There was a time, and you've only got to read, and I would certainly recommend you, if you've never done this, I recommend you to do it. Recommend you even to begin to build some of your own prayer life around it. To go out and buy, especially the first of the two little volumes that have been put out on the pastor of prayer, Spurgeon's prayers. Spurgeon never wanted his prayers to be published. He would never allow it in his lifetime. And I could understand why. But I'm glad that somebody overruled him. For somebody, well, there was a woman there taking down his sermons. And she took down the prayers and all. Whether she was meant to do it or whether she wasn't. She was, going, like most women, going to have her way. <laughs> and she did it. And I'm very grateful that she did it. So when he was gone, dead and gone, past more in alabaster, his publishers, they put out the pastor at prayer. And many and many a Sabbath morning before I have come to church, I've got on my knees before God and I have opened the pastor at prayer and just let it lead me to the throne of grace so that it becomes part of me and part of my prayer. But when, when you read Spurgeon's prayers, you understand why when Moody went to Spurgeon's tabernacle, he came out saying the singing was wonderful. But that's not what impressed me. The preaching was everything you would expect, knowing that Spurgeon was the preacher. But that's not what impressed me. What most impressed me was when Mr. Spurgeon prayed. He led the people in prayer. You go back in the history of Protestantism, and you read the prayers of, say, John Calvin. After his expositions, his prayers weren't particularly long. But my, how they led the people right to the throne of God. In Presbyterianism particularly, in Scotland, the pastoral prayer was the heartbeat of the service. But you go to most Bible-believing churches today and tell me, how often, how often when the preacher leads the congregation in the opening prayer, Usually in American churches, it's a 30-second rush into and out of the presence of God. And that's almost blasphemous. There is a time when you can shoot a prayer to God in three seconds, never mind 30 seconds. But that's not the standard for the public praying in the church of Christ. It's not the standard. And it ought never to be the standard. We're so wrapped up in our wickedness and worldliness... That even God Almighty has to be in a hurry so that we can dismiss him in 30 seconds. The thing is rotten to the core. 
preachers who don't know how to pray. I remember when I came to Greenville at first, I was utterly shocked to hear, and it wasn't in any uh, roundabout way uh, from enemies or people who wanted to do a good man down, but to hear of a very prominent fundamental preacher who said that I have this to do and this to do and this to do and this to do a big church, a big school, a big missions program, a big other program, another program, another program I don't have time to pray and that was the day either he should have got that right with God or retire and go and do another job I don't have time to pray. And therefore doesn't how to pray. Challenges me. You can preach for years. You can even preach as these fellows had done with success. If you had gone to any of the towns and cities in Galilee and asked them about Peter and James and John, oh, they're mighty fellows. We see the miracles they did here. Hear the sermons they preached here. But they didn't know how to pray. Teach us to pray. We need to learn. And there's a sense in which, of course, only the Lord can teach. I can't teach you to pray. Now, that's a relative statement, obviously. Insofar far as prayer is a Bible doctrine, I can teach it. But insofar as it is an inwrought grace, only the Lord can teach it. But look at this on a very superficial level. When Jesus had ceased praying, one of the disciples wanted to learn to pray. And that is a great rebuke to me, and it ought to be to every preacher. You know, we preachers, we, we get on to people at times. I learned very early in my ministry to be very careful about this. But I don't know if it was like this in America. I'm sure it was, but certainly in Northern Ireland. Christians are the strangest bunch of people. I mean... Uh, you talk about masochists. Well, they're masochists, all right. They go to a meeting and the preacher would rip them apart, up and down, and he would chew them up and spit them out. And they come out and say, Man, was not a great meeting. A powerful meeting, that. He just ripped us to bits. <laughs> Anywhere else, I don't know any other people pay to go to be made to feel good by being made to feel miserable and wretched and rotten. But uh, I knew meetings like that many and many a time. And preachers would be urging the people to be out to pray and be at the prayer meeting. And then when they didn't come to the prayer meeting, the preacher would be mad and he'd get up and he would rip the prayer meeting crowd to bits for these people who weren't at the prayer meeting. I always used to think that was rather strange, you know. Here I have come and you're blasting me because these other people didn't come. And I think that's a wee bit unfair. Maybe times I needed to be blasted, but was never for missing the prayer meeting, I can tell you that. Uh, 
So I, I don't, I've never made that mistake too often of uh, ripping the people up and down about not being a prayer meeting. But preachers are always on. Do it, do it, do it. And yet, here's the awful, simple truth. A praying preacher begets in others a desire to pray. You can take that to your own home as well. You tell your children pray and you'll feel. But you let your children live up seeing a father and a mother who prays. And they want to learn to pray. The best teacher is the doer. The Lord Jesus was praying and when he ceased praying, the desire was already in the hearts of his disciples. Lord, we need to learn to pray. And so they came and they asked the Lord Jesus. Now it's really off the subject of Christ at prayer to uh, give much attention to his answer to that request. But never being one to be too much bothered with sticking to the subject, (laughs) I would be very glad to wander a little. Because in reality, there is a very precious theme here. In reality... It does really not stray too far from the subject of Christ at prayer. Verse 1 is Christ praying. After that, it's Christ teaching his disciples to pray. And when you stop to think of it, when the church is at prayer, it is a continuation and an extension of the very ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's in union with him that our praying counts for anything. If it's not in union with him, then we may as well beat the air as say prayers because they're going to do no good whatsoever. But since we are in union with him, there is a sense therefore in which I can say that our praying, insofar as it is praying according to the biblical model, is an extension of or a continuation of the very ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he inhabits the praises of his people. And if he inhabits the praises of his people, there is no way that he does not also inhabit the prayers of his people. So, it's not really too far from Christ at prayer to see how he instructs his people to pray. He gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And since I spent a few weeks preaching through the Lord's Prayer not too long ago on Sabbath mornings, I am not going to do it all again. But can I give you a very simple word of advice? This is a prayer that is very brief. It's a prayer that you can learn. I'm sure everybody already knows it off by heart. But if you don't, Perchance, you can learn it off by heart in five minutes. It's a very brief and simple prayer to learn. And yet, I have found many and many and many and many a time when I needed to get before God, my brain was incapable of thinking too much or Traversing too much spiritual territory. I could get before the Lord with this prayer. 
and just pray, not simply recite, but pray and stop and think and perhaps expand upon syllable by syllable. I remember Steve Ludwig telling me when I was doing the Lord's Prayer here, and I'd made a statement such as that, and he said, I have found the very same thing. There's many and many a time that I start to pray through the Lord's Prayer, and I can never finish it. Because I have been so blessed, so caught up with some part of it that the Lord has opened up some part of it to me to lead me in the worship of the Lord, to lead me to an insight of some characteristic of the Lord or His dealings with me, or I've come to a new understanding of what I am and have in Christ, or I have a new burden or a new direction for my petitions. Many a time when I have come, he told me, I have not even got to the end of this brief prayer. So, Jesus said, when ye pray, say. Now, I have never actually done this in the church to make this part of a service, the liturgy, as it would be called. Don't be afraid of the word liturgy, it only means service. It's an order of service. So anytime you have an order of service, you have a liturgy. Uh, we tend to think of liturgy as high church, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, high Anglican or something. It doesn't necessarily have to be that. But uh, I have demurred at making the congregational recitation of the Lord's Prayer part of every service. But I have to say that uh, it has been always with a question mark in my mind. The thing that has kept me going along that line is that I think the Lord Jesus is speaking more of personal worship and prayer here than he is of corporate worship and prayer. But that's only a thought. I'm not saying it doesn't apply to corporate worship. And I must say that I have given a lot of thought to the benefits. If only we could get beyond recitation. If only we could keep our minds sharp and fresh to the benefits of a congregation every time they meet together honestly not just saying the words but honestly lifting up their hearts to God because Jesus said when ye pray say now he meant more than simply say the words but he must mean at least say the words and yet there are so many Christians praying the Lord's prayers beneath their dignity It's too simple. That's something you teach your children. Yes, it is. But if you live to be as old as Methuselah, you'll never plumb the depths of that prayer. You'll never get to the bottom of it. Our Father. Our Father. We come to pray. Here am I. The Scriptures say... Isaiah 41, fear not thy worm, Jacob. Now, if Jacob was a worm, what does that make you and me? A worm. I never did like gardening an awful lot. The only pleasure I got as a wee fella when I was made to go out to dig in the garden was when a big fat worm 
was wriggling to get out of the way and in my uh, gentleness I'd reach out and pull that thing up and see it stretch and pull it right out of the hole and then toss it away or if you happen to slice it in two with your spade instead of having no worm you had two worms you know what do you think worms do a very good job by the way they're very interesting little creatures not going to get into that but that's Bill Pinkson's area isn't that right Bill fear not thou worm Bill Uh, I'm going to say something else but I'm going to refrain from that (laughs) you wouldn't (laughs) Uh, fear not thou worm can you get any lower than that yet this worm comes to the God of glory before whom angels cover their face and their feet and cry holy, holy, holy and we say our Father you think of that let it sink in I have talked to various people over the years I remember speaking to a family who had been through horrific times their father was a preacher one of the most hell inspired men I've ever known a rotten wicked perverted filthy immoral disgusting sinner if he doesn't repent he'll be in God's hell pastor or not most disgusting reptile of a man and I was there to try and pick up the broken pieces of a shattered family and I remember one of those young women saying to me I have a hard time praying the Lord's Prayer I have a hard time thinking of God as a father and why that should thrill my heart it's the only father I have ever known and we went down the line again but remember divine fatherhood is not a picture or an extension of human fatherhood Human fatherhood is meant to be a reflection of the divine. And many human fathers are not. But remember this. You also and I also, we bear the image of God. And how much do we, even though we're saved, how much do we reflect the image of God? So before we're too quick at blaming everybody else for not reflecting what of the Lord what they ought to reflect, remember we often don't do a very good job ourselves. That's not to let them off the hook. But it is to say, don't tar the image and the name of the Lord with the same brush with which you've tarred ungodly men. When God says He is our Father, He is saying that the mighty greatness of God and all the glorious attributes of God have been brought into a framework of a family covenant 
where he has brought us in to the very nearest relationship that it is possible for a creature to have with the Almighty. And he envelops us in the arms of everlasting love. And he holds out to us hands that are full of everlasting grace and provision. And he says, knowing all that, I want you to come and cry, Our Father. That's the very beginning of prayer. The very beginning. Just to realize it. And until we realize what we are to God and what God is to us, we'll never pray. The Lord Jesus didn't talk to them about how they were dressed. Didn't talk to them about the length of their hair, whether they had a beard or a mustache. Oh man, some of you fellows don't, well, I'm going to know that. Be careful. Didn't talk to them about that. Didn't talk to them about forms. Didn't talk to them about uh, exactly how to. He's saying, look, understand this. Get this at the very beginning. If this gets through to your heart, you'll be able to pray. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this. That the person who understands Well, let me rephrase that. You'll never understand it. The person who begins to grasp the words, Our Father, has got at least in embryo everything the Bible can ever teach you about prayer. If you can just get that, you will not stop short. In any area, that relationship with God. When you come to pray, have a great interest in the glory of God. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. I think, unless my brain is, and this can happen, so tired that I I can hardly think of what I'm doing. Every Sabbath day before I come out. That's my prayer. That's constantly the unremitting cry that I have got to put up to the Lord. Hallowed be thy name. And I've often told the Lord, uh, I want to preach my best. Now before some sarcastic person comes and tells me afterwards, Mike Barrett or otherwise, That still doesn't reach very high off the ground. Okay, but I still want to do my best. And my wife will tell you what Mondays are like in our house. They're usually a very dreary day. I'm nearer dead than alive. And when I go home after some efforts at preaching, I say, Lord, why do I have to do it ever again? Why does anybody ever have to listen to it ever again? That's natural. But there's many a time I've come to the Lord. When I look at my preparation and say, Lord, I can see nothing there. Of course, that's every week. I can see nothing there. If you ever see Mike and me talking up there, I'm usually leaning over to say, Mike, do you feel a sudden burden and passion that you must preach this morning? For these notes have gone dead on me. I don't know where I'm going. And uh, in his usual kindness, he says, with a sneer, no. <laughs> but anyway. Many a time I've had to come to the Lord and say, Lord, hallowed be thy name. 
And if it glorifies God that I stutter and stammer or fall flat on my face, hallowed be thy name. And let thy kingdom come in the hearts of men to bring sinners into the kingdom, to expand the rule of grace in the lives of God's people. And to the ends of the earth. Thy kingdom come. And let us live that we may be hastening unto that coming day of Christ. And thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. What a day that's going to be. Thy will done on earth as it is in heaven. But I can't pray that unless I'm willing to start with me. Thy will be done in me. As it's done in heaven. That's how you've got to have an interest in the glory of God when you pray. This business that God is a, a sort of a, an open cash register up there and we just run into the presence of God, punch the requisite keys, draw out the money we need and run away. I suppose in modern terms it be more like a, a, an easy accessible ATM machine. That's the way most Christians look at God. Just rush in, give me this, give me that, give me that. On our way, and we don't even have the grace of the Samaritan leper to come back and say thank you. But that's not prayer. Oh, prayer can ask for those things. But prayer is first an interest in God's glory. And if Jesus Christ is going to extend his ministry of prayer through you and me, we're going to have to pray for his glory. Read John 17 and see what he was interested in. Father, glorify me as I have glorified you. That's how Christ prayed. That's how we ought to be praying. When we come, do bring our daily needs. Daily bread, daily finances, health, strength, family needs. Those are all legitimate things for prayer. Bring them to the Lord in prayer. Be aware of your need of cleansing. Be aware of sin. And cry for forgiveness. The old Puritans used to talk about keeping short accounts with God. Keeping short accounts with God. You know what it is. Take an example from everyday life. You have a credit card. You go out and you have... Dinner. Some of you women go out and buy an outfit or whatever. End of the month comes. Say there's $50 in that credit card. And they tell you you can get away with paying $5. Don't tell you, of course, you'll still have $50 to pay next month. Maybe more than $50. And then the next month, the next month, and you keep on adding to that. What you find is, if you keep short accounts and pay it as it comes, you can do it. Whereas you let it mount, and then to get out of that mess is a real tough proposition. Now, spiritually, the same thing obtains. Christians should keep short accounts with God. When the Lord brings something to our attention, then that's when we should deal with it. 
Don't let things run and run and run and run and run and run until you find that you've lost out with God and you can hardly even begin to pray. Be aware of sin. Get a picture in your mind. And this will help you to do it. Have a look at Mike Barrett there. You see him? Svelte. Skinny. Oh, sorry, slim. There was a time when Mike was a blimp. Is that right? That's what he told me. I, I never knew him in those days. To me, he was always perfectly proportioned. But he said, uh, he, he said he was a blimp. And he showed me a picture, and I would never believe it was Mike Barrett. But he decided he was going to lose weight. And he did lose weight. And you got the result. But I remember him telling me something. And maybe I shouldn't give this away, but people like me would need to do it too. He said when he got that weight off, every morning he would get on the scale. Alright? And he said he would also have the tape round his waist, and he would measure that waist every day. And if he had half a pound on, he got that half a pound off before he went on with life. And kept that at night. That took a great deal of discipline. And I admire him for it. If he would do it for me too, I'd be a lot better looking. But uh, I admire him for it. One of the very few people I've known who has had the, the dedication. Now, he doesn't really need to do that. But he did it and did it and did it. Now, that's to me a picture of how we keep short accounts with God. You don't wait until small things become big things. It's when they're small things, you deal with them. It's immediately they come. And that's what the Lord Jesus is teaching us. That we take account of our sins and we're looking to be right with God. Look for the leading of the Lord and do pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. There's a scripture that always scares the life out of me. By King Hezekiah. The Lord left him. To try him. Really to see what was in him. And that great king, Hezekiah, fell miserably. Many and many a time when I pray through this, I cry to the Lord, Lord, leave me not even to test me. Whatever I've got to face, let me face it with the knowledge of the presence of God. For if I lose the presence of God, or lose the, the joy of it, I've lost power to do anything worthwhile for God. Deliver me from evil, from the evil one. Separation from sin and from sin. This is how to pray. And then he goes on to give you examples, which I'll not go into tonight. But this is how Christ continues his prayer ministry in us and through us. I trust tonight that we will learn from that. We'll understand our relationship with God, at least to some extent. And then knowing that, that we shall be able to pray through and get the victory and obtain the answer.